Hi there, and thank you for joining us for this tiny expedition. We're a podcast about genetics, DNA, and inheritance from the Hudson Alpha Institute for Biotechnology. Today's little journey into tiny science starts with man's best friend. No, no. Man's original best friend. This journey starts back when dogs were still wolves. Dogs arose from wolves in the relatively recent past, um, somewhere longer than probably, say, 10,000 years ago, somewhere shorter than, say, uh, 30,000 years ago. You probably knew that dogs were part wolf, but you might not realize that thousands of years later, some wolves became part dog. Our guide for this tiny expedition is none other than the man who discovered the dogs actually contributed to the evolution of modern wolves. Uh, Yeah, I'm Greg Barsh. I'm a faculty member here at Hudson Alpha. Of course, he'll tell you it's not all him. He leads a team of researchers that works on these discoveries. Over the last probably 10, 20, 25 years, most of my work has focused on using natural variation to understand basic rules of biology, how genes work, how genes talk to each other, uh, how genes interact with one another. Dr. Barr spends a lot of time on what scientists call morphology, which isn't nearly as complicated as it sounds. And morphology is just general appearance. It can be anything from shape uh, or size or color uh, to uh, more very specific things in humans like, you know, eye color or body weight uh, or body shape, things like that. So when we talk about dogs, it's not just about knowing what makes a dog a certain size or color. It's about learning how all of our genes work together to make life as we know it. In genetics, uh, morphology has played an incredibly useful role from the dawn of genetics. It's what Gregor Mendel used to understand and develop the basic rules of recognizing genes, recognizing gene action, understanding how genes are transmitted and uh, inter- and interact with one another. So now, some, what, 150 years later, uh, morphology is, is a useful entry point for biologists for the same reason it was for Gregor Mendel. It's readily accessible. It's something that we can immediately see. We don't need a microscope to measure morphology. We can just look at it with our eyes. Uh, It's very quantitative. We can look at, uh, you know, slight, we can detect very subtle changes in genetic activity by the shade of the hair or the change in uh, height uh, of an individual. And, and so it is a both sensitive and very accessible and efficient measure. Okay, okay. So it makes sense why appearances matter. But that uh, begs the question, so to speak, why dogs? Dogs and wolves are a topic of fascination to scientists and to anyone who is an animal lover or animal owner. Uh, and part of the reason is that, you know, dogs, uh, they, they engender such a remarkable emotional response in us. Uh, and a lot of that response is based on our connection with uh, what some people might argue is our favorite companion animal. Uh, and part of that emotional response is the appreciation that there is so much remarkable diversity uh, among different dogs. So, and that diversity is, of course, changes morphology like, you know, body shape and size and, 
whether the ears are folded over, but also its diversity in behavior, the way a dog interacts with you, the way a dog responds to commands, uh, the, uh, the activity uh, of, again, uh, arguably our favorite companion. And it just so happens that morphology may have played a key role in domesticating wolves in the first place. After all, people had to get the idea somewhere that wolves might be willing to work with them. As humans were uh, moving around, uh, migrating out of Africa, uh, peopling Europe uh, in the, say, period between, what, 10,000 and 50,000 years ago, they realized that uh, there was an opportunity to to use uh, animals, to use canids, uh, as, um, as tools in what they were doing, to use them as hunters, to use them uh, as retrievers, to use them as, as companions. Uh, and so it's that process that is thought to have led to uh, the notion of domestication, that, well, let's, let's breed, uh, let's, let's uh, find dogs that will do, or let's find wolves that uh, look like they will tolerate us, uh, and then uh, let's live with them or uh, try and attract them to live with us. Uh, and as they breed and as humans then say, oh, well, this one does a little bit more of what we want it to do, uh, that really started the process of artificial selection that led to the uh, domestication of wolves into dogs. It just makes sense that humans would value and breed the wolves they like best. There's a lot of factors that contribute to that. Utility, for starters. Is a dog a good hunter, a good retriever, a good guard? But at some point, things like personality and appearance start to make a difference. In fact, as dogs become distinct from wolves, they really start to lean into the whole cute thing. Dogs even have an extra muscle in their eyebrows that wolves don't have. It helps them make those so-called puppy dog eyes. One 2013 study found that when videotaping people at an animal shelter, you could associate dogs that use that eyebrow movement with a higher adoption rate. It's a big asset for the species. And that concept, at least partially, tells the story of how dogs grew apart from wolves. I like the idea that, um, uh, and I agree with the suggestion that the appearance of an animal, and not only their appearance, but the way that an animal engages uh, with uh, the way that a dog or a canid engages with a human is something that powerfully contributes to their relationship. So let's look at another striking physical difference between dogs and wolves. Color. Dogs come in all kinds of colors. Now, most animals attribute their color to a specific gene, the MC1R. That stands for melanocortin-1 receptor. You may have heard of melanin. It's the pigment that colors human skin. It also helps color fur throughout the animal kingdom. The function of the melanocortin-1 receptor is to tell melanocytes to produce uh, a lot of uh, dark, uh, dark melanin that is usually either black or brown. And when you don't have uh, a melanocortin-1 receptor present, uh, let's say uh, either because it's deleted or because there's something that's blocking its activity, then in, instead of the cells, the melanocytes, instead of them producing the dark brown or black pigment, uh, they produce a, a lighter pigment that can be yellow or red or sometimes cream colored. Whether you realize it or not, you see MC1Rs work all the time. For one easy example, look at humans. The classic uh, carrot red hair, fair skin, freckling phenotype 
uh, is indeed caused by uh, inactivating mutations of the of the MC1R. There's one other common gene that can regulate coat color in animals. It's called ASIP. So there are two ways you typically get animals with black fur, a change in either ASIP or MC1R. That change causes a kind of overproduction of melanin, which creates the black coat color. Except for some reason, dogs are different. Black dogs, they don't have anything wrong with their melanocortin-1 receptor or their ACIP. It must be something else. And so the reason we were interested in these black dogs is we said, oh, well, here's an example of something that's controlling the melanocortin-1 receptor signaling pathway that might be new and interesting and different. And so that's why we chose to work on black dogs to begin with. And that's pretty interesting. And not just because we need to know what makes black dogs black, but because that coloring could be a clue. We were really interested in the melanocortin receptor or the pathway in which the melanocortin receptor lies because it's a pathway that is used broadly in many parts of the body to do many different things. I mentioned earlier that uh, the cortin in melanocortin refers to the ability to produce cortisol. And so, in fact, there is a melanocortin-2 receptor that's present in the adrenal gland and is required for the production of cortisol. The melanocortin-3 and 4 receptor are in the brain, uh, and they're acted on by very similar kinds of signaling molecules to uh, ACIP to control uh, feeding uh, and eating and body weight. So the idea is that um, just as morphology is very accessible, we can use hair color uh, as an entry point to understand how these signaling pathways work uh, in many different parts of the body and across really all different mammals. So that's why we study the melanocortin receptor to begin with. So they're studying these black dogs and they find this tiny change DNA is made up of pairs of nucleotides. In the genetic code, they're represented by letters. You call those two letters a base pair. A dog's genome features roughly 3 billion base pairs. So Barsh and his team are studying these black dogs, and they find three base pairs that look different. Three out of 3 billion. They're part of a molecule called beta defense in 103. Barsh and co. start looking closer. There's a woman named Sophie Candiel, just a wonderful scientist. Uh, and she worked with one, one of um, uh, another, another person in the group, a guy named Chris Kalin, who's also a wonderful scientist. And they had, so, Sophie had observed this three nucleotide change. And we said, yeah, you know, um, it's in this weird molecule. It's, this is part of the immune system. It does correlate with the color, but it just, you know, no one's ever observed defensins having anything to do with hair color, so it's probably just a correlation. It's probably not real. It's probably not the cause of the black coat color. So we talked about it back and forth, and, and we said, well, let's do an experiment to check. Let's see what happens if we take beta defensin and we make mice that produce too much beta defensin 103, just as happens in dogs. And I remember one day, you know, Sophie said, this is amazing. I looked in the mouse room and some of the mice in which we introduced the beta defense gene, they're black. And so we said, oh my gosh, that is amazing. And I still remember that. And that is how we get back to wolves. Because in some parts of the world, you can find black wolves and their color comes from the same genetic change as black dogs. 
Well, indeed, the black wolves do carry the uh, three nucleotide deletion uh, in the beta defensin, and so certainly the black wolves are black uh, because, like dogs, they express uh, a little bit too much of beta defensin 103. Uh, however, we were really surprised to find that uh, usually we think, as we were talking earlier, that dogs are domesticated from wolves, and so we thought, well, dogs may have acquired all of their um, genes and variants in those genes uh, from wolves. Uh, and so we thought that's where the beta defensin 103 mutation originally arose, the black beta defensin 103 mutation in wolves. But that's not the case. It turns out that it actually arose in dogs, and then they gave it back to wolves. How you figure that out gets a little technical, so stick with us. These little genetic mutations exist on larger pieces of the genome. Those pieces are called chromosomal fragments. By looking at the size of the fragments, you can tell how long the species has carried the mutation. You can look at the size of these different fragments, uh, which, which often are much, much bigger than individual genes. So a particular chromosomal fragment that you can see moving around over generations can carry dozens or sometimes even hundreds of genes. We could tell that the, the chromosomal fragment that carries the beta defensin mutation, the dog beta defensin mutation, is enormous in wolves. So all, wol all black wolves carry a very, very large chromosomal fragment that carries the, beta, the dog beta defensin mutation. Now, if you look among uh, a lot of different dogs, the size of the fragment that carries the beta defensin mutation is smaller. So the, uh, the and, and a general, principle of evolution is that the size of these linked chromosomal fragments becomes smaller during subsequent breeding generations, and so subsequent generations during one generation of breeding to the next. Uh, and so because the size of the chromosomal fragment in wolves is much, much larger than the size of the chromosomal fragment in dogs, we know that the wolves acquired it much more recently than the dogs. So the conclusion you can draw is that domesticated dogs bred with wolves at some point, and in the process, they passed over this genetic mutation. But there's one more mystery to solve here. Now, we know how dogs evolved from wolves. People carefully bred the wolves, choosing traits they liked. That includes how useful they are, how cute they are, how friendly. At some point, they become genetically distinct enough that they are now dogs. But people keep breeding them and eventually develop a variety of dogs, and many of them have black coats because that's what people wanted. But why did the dark coats stick in the wolf population? There's no selective breeding to keep it around, so that means it was naturally selected. Why? Part of that answer could lie in the environment. You typically find black wolves in North America, specifically in packs that live in forested regions, as opposed to populations that, say, live on the tundra. Correlation of, uh, of wolf coat color to environment is very striking, and so it probably has been selected for, but it's not clear what the mechanism of selection is. And, and that's often a situation that uh, we find ourselves in as geneticists uh, who think about uh, really all animals, including mammals and natural environments. We can use the tools of genetics and genomics to say, oh yeah, here is a particular phenotype, a particular color, a particular size, a particular change, a partic something that has been selected for. And we can 
use the tools of molecular genomics to identify signatures of selection. We can even look at regions of the genome and say, this region of the genome has been selected for, even though we don't know why it's been selected. That makes it seem like the black wolves have some sort of natural advantage in the forest environment. Yeah, the, uh, this is an observation that was made by a field biologist and ecologists who have studied wolves for many, many years. And, and yeah, they observed that the, uh, the frequency of black wolves was uh, very correlated with the uh, environment in which they lived, that in these you know, dark forested areas, there was a higher proportion of black wolves than in the uh, non-forested snowy environments. You might guess the darker wolves have an easier time hiding in the forest, but not necessarily because... One of the things about tracing the reason for it was that the black wolves still go gray. Uh, can you tell me the significance of that, at least by your way of thinking? Well, this is more of a, I would say, uh, an an anecdotal observation, right? Could you call it a pet theory? Yeah, I think think you could call it a pet theory. Uh, I might call it a wolf theory. Okay, so so yeah, um, you know, black wolves as they age, uh, and this has been observed in uh, animals on reserves or captive animals, yeah, they they lose their their black coloration. In fact, one of the wolves that... uh, you know, we studied and worked with and photographed as part part of the uh, work that we did. Uh, we had photographs of the animal, you know, when they were older, and yeah, the individual they they became gray uh, as 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 they got older. So so that you know could mean uh, that that the it's not the coat color itself that's providing the selection. It could be something else, and there is actually an intriguing theory that actually about what the something else could be, although it is. I would say still pretty much of a theory, um, and 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 that gets back to the name of the molecule, right? So uh, the molecule is beta defensin one hundred three, and it gets its name defensin because it's part of a large family of molecules that are part of the immune system and help to uh, uh, bind to and in, inactivate uh, invading bacteria and viruses. One of the things I remember reading in some of the interviews about it was that it was possible that it was a viral skin infection that would survive in the forest but not in the tundra, which would explain the distribution of color. That's a really interesting idea. Maybe someday someone will confirm it. Those are the moments scientists really cherish. The ones where you can pinpoint when a theory becomes a discovery. It's hard not to feel a little awe at the idea that finding just three letters out of three billion can totally change our understanding of something like the evolution of dogs and wolves. But that's genetics. Genetics is incredibly powerful. You have a tremendous... The, 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 the beautiful thing about genetics is you start with differences in phenotype. You start with, uh, oh, well, here is a, you know, smooth pea and a wrinkled pea, or a black dog and a brown dog, or a human with uh, a disease and a human uh, without a disease. And without knowing anything else, you can use the powers of genetics and genomics to determine the molecular basis of that phenotypic difference. And sometimes you find things that you already knew. Sometimes you rediscover genes that were already known in other situations. But sometimes you discover things that were completely unexpected 
uh, and that is indeed the case with these black dogs. Again, thank you for joining us for this tiny expedition into the evolution of wolves, into dogs, into wolves. All this season, we'll tackle fascinating stories of morphology, the genetics that give life its incredible diversity. Tiny Expeditions is a podcast about genetics, DNA, and inheritance from the Hudson Alpha Institute for Biotechnology. We're a nonprofit research institution in Huntsville, Alabama. We've got a campus full of scientists doing public research alongside companies developing products and services, all with one aim to translate genomic discoveries into real-world applications that make for a healthier, more sustainable world. That's everything from cancer research to agriculture for a changing climate. If it's work you find worthwhile, just do us a small favor right now. Leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening to this. And tell someone that you listen to this interesting little story about genetics. Help them find our podcast. Knowledge is better when you share it. Thanks for joining us. On the next Tiny Expedition, how wild is your house cat? If you think about it, dogs come in all kinds of shapes and sizes, but house cats are all built roughly the same. That's because of the genetic process of domestication. We'll explore why house cats are just a little more wild. Also, if you want to see pictures that go with this episode that you just heard, check out tinyexpeditions.org. For Tiny Expeditions, I'm David Kumbrach. Talk to you soon. Hudson Alpha. 